Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain with the No Film School podcast for the week of April 3rd, 2020, COVID quarantine week number three. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And writer of all subjects at No Film School, Michelle De La Tour. Hey everybody. And we are going to be covering some interesting implications of unemployment shutdown with The Matrix in Germany. We're going to be covering some tech news with Apple being friendly with Windows. We're going to be adding a new subject, What to Watch, where we try and highlight some things, maybe digging into the archives a bit, and then we're going to wrap it up with an Ask No Film School about working remotely that I think is going to be relevant to a whole lot of people. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. Our top story this week, there's a lot of film production that happens in Germany. There's Studio Babelsberg, uh, you know, the Wachowskis shoot in Germany a lot. Uh, I think Cloud Atlas shot Germany. A lot of international productions shoot in Germany. And um, like many countries, it is all shut down right now. Um, And the reason why it shut down is the coronavirus. And the German government is actually doing a really good job of setting up unemployment funds for productions that are shut down. And this is tricky in the film industry. All of our listeners understand how tricky this is in the film industry because it is, you know, if you get laid off from like, I don't know, you've had a job at IBM for 15 years and you have like pay stubs and an established thing and you've been paying into normal unemployment insurance, it's really easy. But we're filmmakers. We move from gig to gig and project to project. It's really hard to document. It's really hard to manage. And it's really wonderful that the German government is stepping in and being like, all right, productions that are shut down, like we will also cover your unemployment through this time. However, The Matrix 4, which has been shooting in San Francisco, was about to move to Germany. They had hired crew in Germany, but it had not started shooting yet. Many companies are continuing to pay their cleaning services. You know, if you have an office and you hire a cleaning service to come in, many companies are continuing to pay their cleaning service, even though they're not bringing their cleaning service in right now. But let's say you just moved to a new office and you were about to hire a cleaning service, but you hadn't hired them yet. Should you still be paying them for the duration if you were about to hire them? And that's sort of the situation that the Matrix is in, is that the, you know, the German government, I don't think, um, had really planned on covering productions that were about to start but all of the workers in the matrix many of whom are german citizens you know when productions go abroad it's not like they bring 250 people from the united states to to berlin to work they'll bring you know quote unquote above the line crew director producer production designer but then you know director of photography but then really quickly it'll often be like a local gaffer a local first ac a local key grip like a you know so these are you know we're not talking about Keanu Reeves getting bailed out. Keanu Reeves is going to bail the rest of us out with his smile. We're talking about, you know, workers <laughs> in the German film industry. Also, specifically as a shout out, we really want to have a guest on the show that can dig into the CARES Act with us in a future week. And so if any of you are sort of have the legal or political expertise to talk about how the CARES Act is going to work with freelance filmmakers, we would really appreciate it if you could reach out to us on the Twitter or the email because we would like to have a conversation with you because we're going to be struggling with a lot of this in North America. The CARES Act, which is an acronym because, man, does the government love acronyms, um, is designed to provide unemployment benefits and finally covers gig workers. I think if this happened 15 years ago, it wouldn't. So even though the film industry has been gig-based since the 70s, um, the film industry would have been out of luck in the nineties if this had happened, but now so much of, so much of the economy is gig based that I think they understood that they had to cover gig workers, that that was unavoidable, that that was necessary. 
but we don't know exactly how it's going to work. Like if you're an individual freelance gig worker, if you're, you know, if you've incorporated yourself, if you, you know, if you regularly employ four or five other people, but they're gig workers, like the film industry is very complicated. And we're just seeing the implications of how complicated this all is specifically with the film industry. It's great the German government's doing something. It's great that we managed to pass something in the United States, although it's not a perfect bill. No bill ever is. But there are a lot of sort of complicated um, situations as people try and navigate like how exactly are we going to take care of gig workers through this time? Germany's clearly take Germany's taking the like, all right, we're going to take the people who are on gigs and take care of them, which sort of sucks. If you're like, if you just came off a two year TV show and you're like, I was going to take a month off and then worry about finding another job. And then that month it shut down, that would be a real bummer. So it's sort of interesting to really look at how hard it is to help film industry through these processes. And so the film industry is kind of helping itself. We'll have some links up on the site eventually about this, about, um, you know, there are sort of collective resources uh, out there, freelancers union and other gig based organizations that are trying to help in this time. Cause it is a, it is a really tricky time to navigate. I agree. I, the thing that catches my attention about this story in the first place is that there are a lot of people who, like you're saying, kind of go job to job, gig to gig. And if you hadn't already started on production on the matrix for, then, you know, you're going to, these people may be out of luck in terms of getting compensated, but there's people who are just like in between jobs or maybe hoping to get the next one. Like, I, I think it points to the bigger problem. Does that make sense of like, there's all these people who are, were waiting for the next job and there wasn't something that was about to happen. And how long have they been waiting? And now how long do they have to wait before things get back up? And the other side of it that's kind of scary is what position will a lot of the production companies and studios be in like things like the matrix will obviously be a priority to get back up and running. But this, this could have a pretty big effect on slates in the coming year, because a lot of these companies are going to be in a bit of a bind in terms of cash flow. Um, just imagine Disney, for example, there was a story that a lot of the executives were taking significant pay cuts and not just like CEOs, like, you know, across the board, across all of the massiveness of Disney. And that's going to happen on tons of, at tons of studios, uh, writers rooms and associate producers, like everything, things are being cut because the numbers just, the money just isn't there. And the longer this goes, and it looks like it's going to go for a little bit longer and how that affects the whole calendar year's bottom line. I think it's going to affect all of us. It's going to keep affecting all of us. And like, by the end of this year, it's going to seem, I feel like once we get back into things, there's going to be a limit on how many things can really launch full force. And the limit is going to be slowed down by uh, battles over who gets who when. Like, I'm, going to, I'm just going to use uh, Ryan Gosling as an example, because I think he's a talented actor, but I also love him as a movie star. If you're Baby Goose, you're doing three or two or three movies a year, right? And those movies are scheduled out over the course of the year. So he had an April project and he had an October project, I'm assuming. And it, let's just say October is when the world restarts. That's the world word we keep hearing the team that has him secured in October are going to want baby goose in October. Whatever the project he was shoot, supposed to shoot in April is also going to want baby goose in October. And the battles between these productions and executives to navigate where the like sort of scarce resource of Hollywood celebrity goes as these projects try and get back off the ground. 
I mean, it's already complicated scheduling all of these projects together and doing it like this is a completely unprecedented interruption in production. And uh, yeah, I had not heard that Disney cut executive salary. It's going to be scary, but we'll all hang in there. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we'll keep talking about what's coming up and hopefully these op- these ways that companies like the Netflix thing we, we talked about last week and we've written about on the site, there there are going to hopefully be ways that the industry is supporting its own through this. How much do we think that contracts will change from here on out? So I imagine something like the one that was for The Matrix, like didn't have, I don't know, did it have something in there? It says you, you might get X amount of money and then if something catastrophic happens you get x amount of money are we gonna see that kind of come in to play from here on out like i feel like if you're a freelancer that might be something you look for i do believe that this will change a lot of insurance policies for not just in production world but this is just like i can't even imagine what it's like for insurance like right now like the kinds of things the kinds of damages that are being sought, the way people are sifting through policies to try and figure out what they might be able to recoup. Like there's force majeure, obviously like there are, um, but I don't know, like, you know, the whole thing with insurance is they're always trying to make sure no one's frauding them. And they're always in a way, it always feels like they're trying to not pay things. So, and I premiums, I I just can't, I think it's going to just upend the whole thing. That's my first thought. As far as like contracts and kill fees and stuff like that, um, yeah, I just really, I really don't know. I really have no idea. I have some guesses. So kill fees for me have always been about leverage. Like everybody wants a kill fee, right? We all know that the movie industry is crazy and unpredictable and, and you know, so everybody would like it if, all right, you're booking me for April 20th and I'm not going to take any other jobs for April 20th. So you're going to pay me for April 20th, whether, whether you do the work or not, that's, you know, we're, you're always trying to get the leverage to do it. And I guarantee you that there are some A-list actors who are getting paid for shoots the month of April that are not happening. I also know that if there's one thing that September 11th taught me, it's that everything is litigated. No one, even in the massive insurance policy that was written for those buildings, ever thought through like, all right, how are we going to define an incident? Like, was it planned together? Is that an incident? Like, so there's going to be a tremendous amount. Like, lawyers will be very busy for the next year. The flip side, as George pointed out, the other side of a kill fee is the market. So when when unemployment is high, right, the, the film industry is sort of famously recession-proof. It's not really, there have been some studies where it does get a little affected by recessions, but like, I wonder if a lot of people who got laid off are going to be like, fuck it, I'm moving to LA. Like if, if the world can have pandemics at any time, like maybe I'm going to take whatever I got from my layoff and just move to where the sun shines and try and get into Hollywood. So I wonder if there will be more people competing for jobs in the industry. I just don't know, but it seems like that might be the case. So, and you know, if there's more people competing for the same pool of jobs, it might be harder to get kill fees. I'm going to just devil's advocate because I obviously don't know and we're just hypothesizing, but I'm going to guess that it's going to be less of the case, that the opposite would be true because I think people are not going to try and buy the priciest lotto ticket in town, town meaning the world, like because it's going to be so important to just make a living. Like, I think that there's going to be so many people just looking to work and there's going to be such competition. 
and things like trades and law schools and like people I think are going to be more likely to invest in a shorter thing than a high risk, high reward scenario. But I don't know how people work as in mass. I just, my assumption is that we won't see a lot of people. I think we could see the opposite just is what I'm saying. Like we could see a lot of people decide I can't make it work here right now because there's no work and I don't know when there will be again. And when there will be again, there will be so much competition to get on shows or productions that maybe it's time to just like, I got to get out of here and go do something else for a while or circle the wagon somehow because survival is going to be key for, for all of us. I mean, this is people are getting laid off in all kinds of industries. Like it's not so I, but I, I have no idea. I just think it'll be, it's going to be wacky. After periods of chaos, I guess people do want a feeling of safety, which is not something you get out of working in film. And so, yeah, I think there might be a swing in the like, all right, let me pursue a thing that feels safe and contained. On to tech news. So our big tech news story this week is actually not coronavirus related. Hooray. So um, for those of you guys who don't remember, in the last couple of years, there's been a whole lot of competing in raw video formats. For a long time, uh, you know, in 2008, Red came out with Red Code Raw, which was a raw video format that was compressed, but really uh, usable. And what's nice about raw is that if there's some, you know, if they're setting this wrong on set, maybe you underexposed on set, or maybe you got the color balance wrong on set, you get a lot of flexibility in post to bring that back into normal. You get a lot of room to manipulate it in post-production. Now, Red Code Raw belongs to Red, and then eventually there was Canon Raw and some other Raws came out that belonged to individual companies, but Apple came out with something called ProRes Raw, which is designed to be an open format where a variety of people can shoot to it. You can get it in Atomos recorders or DJI drones. And then about six months later, Blackmagic came out with Blackmagic Raw, also intended to be an open format. And um, initially, ProRes Raw only worked in Final Cut 10. And initially, Blackmagic Raw only worked in Resolve, but they're both sort of slowly rolling out expansions. Uh, Blackmagic Raw will now work in Resolve, of course, but also in Premiere and I believe in Avid. I don't think there's a Final Cut support for it yet. And ProRes Raw will now work in uh, Premiere and Avid. I don't know if it works in Resolve yet, but only on a Mac. And that's actually sort of an, uh, an... interesting thing because the original ProRes, which is this original codec that sort of changed post-production. It was like a, a workable codec. You could you could edit movies and even do some real post-production on movies on much less powerful machines because of the original ProRes. For the first decade of ProRes, it was Apple only. It was a way of motivating people to buy Macintoshes. It was a, you know, within two years of releasing ProRes RAW, which was uh, NAB 2018, we are now seeing real ProRes RAW fully supported coming from Apple. They're doing the support. Right now, it's interestingly only Adobe products. So it's Adobe Premiere and Adobe um, Media Encoder and some other things. But it's still great because, you know, PCs really gained a foothold in the post world. Like they are a common platform in post-production right now. Uh, There's a lot of, there's a great power for price ratio that you get out of PCs. I think what everyone's really waiting to see is if we're going to be able to see it in Resolve on a PC because a lot of color houses moved over to PC for the power they could get access to, but you still see them running Resolve. And so if it's, if it's able to like be something where you shoot ProRes RAW, you edit it in Premiere and then you bring it right into Resolve all on a PC. I think that's going to be a huge uh, benefit for a lot of users. And I think we're going to see 
ProRes RAW take off more than it has because it hasn't started to show up on a lot of my workflows yet. I haven't seen a lot of it. I think because for the first year it was just a Final Cut 10 thing and uh, I don't I don't end up, only a couple times a year do I end up on jobs that go through Final Cut 10. But I think we could start to see it take off as a capture format because it does offer, we did a side-by-side test here at No Film School comparing it to straight up ProRes 444 capture on like some very underexposed miss white balanced footage which again on set try and get your settings right and ProRes Raw offered a whole lot more recovery room in post-production so PC users you should be excited that another capture format is going to be something that you guys can work with and it's a real sign of where Apple is that they're willing to roll out the support so soon that it's not taking a decade for it to happen so I thought that was pretty cool What's the motivation from the perspective of, obviously it's great for users. I'm all for things that make life easier for users to shoot whatever they want, cut it wherever they want. Like that all makes sense to me from our perspective. But I'm curious from these companies' perspectives, the reasoning. I think that Apple uh, realized that they did a very good job in the film industry for a long time by by becoming the standard. Like ProRes became the standard. Everybody, you know, every job, all the cameras shot to ProRes, the Alexa shot to ProRes, we were delivering in ProRes, networks accepted ProRes, and it was the standard. And the big hurdle to that was that it didn't work on PCs, but they had such market share in post that, you know, we just all sort of accepted it. And I think that this is at least a little bit of an acknowledgement that Apple is serious about staying in the game and that right now the best way for them to stay in that game is to play well with others. I think that if they still had the market share they had in 2007 in post-production, they would have taken just as long to roll out the support. But I think that from 2011 to 2017, you know, in 2011, like I was running a production company that had its own post house. We had 20 Max. I had friends at a bunch of different post houses. None of them were PC. By 20, in 2011, by 2017, half of the people I knew had had made the jump over to PC just because you got so much power for the cost. And like that window, that 2011 to 2017 shift sort of made it that if Apple wants this to be the standard, they want this to be the open source raw, they want it to be the available thing. That means that they're going to need it to be something that you can use on a PC because what, you know, the best chance they have right now is, you know, if you're a lot of those companies that move from Apple to PC did it like one machine at a time and are now sort of like quote unquote hybrid shops where it's like, oh, I've got four PC rooms and four Mac rooms and, and oh, those Macs are getting old. I'm, I'm deciding what I'm going to upgrade them to. And, and you want them to keep upgrading those Mac rooms to Mac and maybe consider moving a couple of those PC rooms back over. But right now you have so many hybrid shops and I feel like the best way to do it is to be friendly to both. All right, so this is a segment in which each of the three of us are going to recommend something we think you should watch that you might not necessarily normally watch on this. And then at the end, after the show's over, hit us up on Twitter or email or whatever with ideas for what we should call this segment. Um, I have a really good one. I'm very excited. The name is sort of a pun, so I'm really excited about that. So I'm going to go last. So who wants to go first? Just want to say right off the bat, typically with No Film School, we try and gear our content more towards what people are doing and what they're working on and what they can do. And we're more action-based 
and we don't necessarily want to get caught up in the idea of like what's great to watch or what are our opinions on things or but this is a time when we're all sitting at home watching stuff or many of us are certainly the ones without kids are and it's a great time to do that and i've always felt that you can learn a lot by watching the stuff you love not necessarily just the best quote unquote stuff but the stuff you love and figuring out why do you love it or what works so well about it for you what does it inspire you to do so i think there's a, always a place in film school or in learning to for watching um that said this is a great time to get recommendations and we've seen a lot of lists on the internet and we've reblogged and published a few on nofilmschool.com about what great filmmakers love watching or what their watch lists are, or what their suggestions are, or their favorite movies, because we're all sitting at home looking for stuff to watch. This is the movie that I think is actually the best Kurosawa movie. And it's not the seven samurai and it's not Rashomon and it's not even Ikiru, which a lot of people love. It's, High and low. High and low. I, was, I don't know. Oh, it's my favorite Kurosawa <laughs> movie. I'm so excited to hear you. Uh, yeah, high and low. I don't. <laughs> so good. I don't know what to call it, what the Japanese, how to pronounce the Japanese title, but the English American title is high and low. And what I love about this movie, I love everything about this movie. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's also available on Apple. It's also available on the Criterion channel to stream. But what I love about it is that it doesn't have any high concept element. So it's not historical. There's no samurai. There's no sword fighting. There's no, it's drama. It takes place, the first act, the first half takes place entirely in one room, essentially, in, an, in a house on a hill. The second part of the movie takes place in the city, and I won't spoil what happens, but there's a major shift in the middle. It's one of the best. I'm going to write a post about it on No Film School one day, maybe hopefully soon I'll have time. But it's one of the best examples of plotting and probably the best example of blocking with a camera in the, I want to say, ever. <laughs> I mean, it's right up there with like Citizen Kane in terms of how the choreography of the camera, the frame, the, the performers, and the way it interacts with the plot is just it's as good as it gets. I don't know how else to put it. And this movie is, if you get started, give it time because the opening scene is a little slow. It's just loading up what you need to know and it's critical. And you may think, why am I watching this? Where is this going? But trust me, once it gets going, once it hooks you, this thing does, this movie does not let go. It is just it's a perfect movie. It's an excellent movie. I've recommended it so many times. And I've never heard anybody say that it wasn't amazing. They don't, they don't just come out of this movie saying it's okay. People really love this movie. I'm going to combine a thank you and a viewing experience in one. But I don't think you need to hear, you know, about Tiger King or Frozen 2 from me because there's a lot <laughs> on that. I, Tiger King's great, but you don't need us to tell you. You don't need right me now. to tell you to watch that. The rest <laughs> of the world is telling you to watch that. What I will say is thank you to those of you who submitted to NFS60. Um, if you use that hashtag in Vimeo or in YouTube or wherever you posted it, you can watch other entries. And people commented on the post on No Film School with their video. And a lot of folks had to put it in their bio. 
So do peruse them. People have a lot of creativity. I was really entertained by several of them. I invite you to do the same. We'll post a few, I believe, and highlight a few. But if you're looking for some short, digestible, smaller than Quibi uh, for a minute of a minute of single stories, head to this, head to the post. Head to um, Vibio or YouTube and also you can look for the hashtag NFS60 and see what people are posting. And I also invite you guys to keep creating. We're, we're in a time where if you have any sort of creative uh, endeavors, things that help you de-stress even, now's a good time to use them. So first off, I want to say I second high and low. It's phenomenal. And if you've just watched it and you want to read something about it until George has his post up, the Museum of the Moving Image, which is this amazing museum in Queens, has a great article on their blog, Reverse Shot, written by a guy named Ben Parker about high and low, which is like when I saw high and low at the Museum of the Moving Image, you get like a printed copy of it in a program. And like it's one of the best like program copy articles of you know because usually it's like the program copy is like directed in whatever year with like you know shot in this location and like this is like a read on the movie it's really enjoyable ben parker i'm jealous i want that yes i'm gonna find it i'm gonna go i'm also going black and white I'm, I'm not actually going that many years away from George. And this is not streaming on any of the big streamers. You're going to have to pay $2.99 on uh, Vudu, $3.99 on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, or Amazon Prime. But I promise you, if you've not seen this movie, I feel confident in recommending this 1950 movie is, in, is thoroughly worth your $3.99. And uh, it's an early film by the director, Nicholas Ray, who's more famous for some films like Johnny Guitar and Rebel Without a Cause. I kind of have always thought Rebel Without a Cause was a little little uneven. There's amazing stuff in there. There's some really hokey stuff in there that doesn't quite work. But In a Lonely Place, 1950, Humphrey Bogart, Gloria Graham is a, it's, it's, it is the ultimate Humphrey Bogart movie. Like it is, like it is a performance of such, caged energy um it just so like you know one of the things we always think about is uh as filmmakers is character introductions right like that's one of the classics it's like in every screenwriting book and every directing book it's like how are you telling your audience who the characters are this dude literally is introduced sitting but the the posture with which he sits has such like dark menace that it's like the best character introduction. I think his only action, he might be chewing. He's like sitting behind another character with menace. And it's like the best character introduction in fucking cinema. And you're like, it's just posture and staging. And obviously Humphrey Bogart helps. It It is a great character introduction. There's a lot of really pleasurable twists and turns. It is, uh, it's the movie that for me really cements Bogart, really cements Nicholas Ray, really cements um, a lot of beautiful things. And a really great performance from Gloria Graham if you're not familiar with Gloria Graham really phenomenal actress and does really great stuff there's another performer named Martha Stewart in it who's not the Martha Stewart of Martha Stewart Lemming don't let that throw you you know what I'll just add real quick about this one because I think it also applies to high and low because I just want people not to be put off by the fact that these are black and white movies and they're a little on the older side these are movies that both have a lot of menace like for movies from that period, these are dark movies. They touch on very dark subjects and they're not going to feel like um, they're not, they, they're ahead of their time, way ahead of their time in terms of just edginess. And they're, and they've informed a lot of the most 
popular filmmakers and films of the of the generations since. So I would say like don't like even um Bogart was always playing, I think, darker characters, but I think that this is a particular, and it's about Hollywood too. He's a screenwriter. So it's very LA. There's a lot of old LA exteriors in it too. It's, it's definitely worth watching. And that leads us on to our Ask No Film School. So this one was not actually an official Ask No Film School, but I had an international uh, buddy of mine reach out. And so we're going to divide this Ask No Film School into a couple chunks, but the a buddy reached out and said, hey, uh, I'm in a country where there's still some limited production. It's reduced, but not stopped. Because, um, you know, most of Europe, most many parts of Asia, many parts of the Americas are completely shut down. But there are some countries that have only had a couple cases or no cases where they've broken the curve, where gatherings of five to ten people are still allowed. And um, he's in one of those countries where it's not violating the protocols. They're in a place where a five to 10 person meeting is still a thing. I think the country that he is in has canceled sporting events, but limited meetings are still possible. And uh, he uh, wanted a little bit of input and thoughts on remote production, getting like buy-in and input from clients, especially abroad. And then also we've had a lot of people who've been like, talking and asking questions about remote workflow for post-production because even though production has all shut down in North America, post-production has not stopped. If you have something in the pipeline, people are still trying to finish it. Um, people are still going and there's been a lot of interesting things there. So we're going to talk about production first. First off, if you are in a comp- country that is still in the middle of, you know, you haven't flattened the curve and you're supposed to shelter in place, Shelter in place. Like, don't try and get 15 people together to shoot. Please follow the advice of epidemiologists and experts. However, if you are in a country and there are still a couple where people are able to go about their business, if you're in, I think, Singapore, you're still allowed to move around. I think South Korea, people might be able to get back out again, or if not now, soon. There are a few countries where it has not been bad yet. If you're in one of those countries and you're planning a production, you're still going to want your shoot to be as small as physically possible. That big party where 50 people show up is probably not going to be the thing. One thing that keeps coming up for me is, you know, I've worked a lot in commercials and music videos and in commercials and music videos, the client often comes to set and they come to set so they can supervise it and they can see all that it's going on in real time. And usually the client's getting a nice meal and a trip out of it. A lot of times, you know, the joke in LA was always all the car clients who wanted to come to LA and stay at shutters on the beach and supervise the shoot. And it was mostly about staying at shutters on the beach and not supervising the shoot. And, you know, that is one of the easiest ways to motivate that group not to come to set the sort of client or management for the music video or whatever it is like to set up ways for them to remote supervise. Cause if it's eight people who work in a production company together every day doing a shoot, they're all exposed to each other. Anyway, the product, the production coming in, especially if they're flying in, that's the vector they want to shut down. And I thought it was a really interesting question. And there are a lot of sort of possible solutions. I mean, one solution that the person pitched and I think is a great one and you should do is setting up a bunch of cameras around the set. Uh, you know, a couple of wide angle cameras right near set that are live streaming so that they can watch everything. There's also the Blackmagic web presenter, which will allow you to take like an SDI stream and put it into a live stream. So you could set up the Blackmagic web presenter. You can't even buy one right now. They're sold out everywhere, but I'm sure Blackmagic's working on that. Um, and so, you know, you've got your picture camera, you have your A camera and you can have the SDI out of that, put it in the web presenter and then your client anywhere 
anywhere in the world can be looking at those multiple webcams that you hook up through Zoom or Discord or any of those streaming platforms. And then the Blackmagic web presenter, which you can also plug into those platforms and they can be remote viewing stuff wherever they are. And frankly, probably happily working on other projects and, you know, cooking lunch or whatever it is they're doing from their house without having to travel and get some sense of engagement and communication with you without necessarily having the same hurdles that you would get otherwise. Um, Vimeo has a live streaming platform that I hear a lot of good things about. It's $99, $999 a year. Um, and I've heard a lot of great stuff about it. I, what, what I hear specifically, and this is just word of mouth, I haven't used it myself, is that you do get better image quality out of the Vimeo live stream because the way the tech is set up is it's, it's sort of set up specifically in that direction. Simultaneous to that is using a tool like, um, there's a bunch of work in progress uh, review tools. There's um, Frame.io is obviously the dominant one, but there's a few others out there as well. And uploading stuff straight to set from Frame.io so that the client can be, you know, Frame.io does a really good job of like syncing across multiple platforms. You can even drag it in and set it up so it automatically shows up in your editing platform. So getting your DIT, getting the shots up immediately so the client can sort of be sitting in their office whenever they want. They can check the live stream whenever they want. They can see the last take and they can play through the last take in Frame.io and leave notes on it or, or Vimeo or another tool like that is sort of, I think, the best workflow we're going to get for minimizing the number of people we can have on set. And interestingly, I mean, this has been happening for a while, famously on the Fantastic Mr. Fox. But Fantastic Mr. Fox shot in London, and the director, Wes Anderson, lives in Paris and directed it from Paris. And then the flip side of that is post-production, and there's a lot of different things going on in post-production. Frame.io is obviously a really big one, but um, there's another one we wanted to talk about, which is... Um, a lot of post people have been asking about workflows for getting into their more powerful work computers. So for instance, let's say at home you have a MacBook Air, but you're a VFX artist. And at work, you have this super powerful PC and it has, you know, massive four NVIDIA Titan graphics cards that cost $10,000. And, and you can't really run Nuke on your MacBook Air, but you, you, you live all day in Nuke. And one thing that people have been doing, and I've been hearing good reports about, and then Michelle, you've heard about some other things, is TeamViewer. So TeamViewer is sort of like, I always associated TeamViewer as being like a uh, like an IT tech support tool. TeamViewer lets someone else take over your computer so that like, you know, if you have your printer settings wrong, the person on tech support on floor 20 doesn't have to go down to floor four and fix it. They can like TeamViewer into your machine and fix whatever settings you have wrong. But I've been hearing some really interesting reports of like VFX workers stuck at home TeamViewering into their machines at work and getting some limited work done. Now, there's always going to be a lag with any kind of these technologies, and that lag is probably going to drive you insane. But, you know, in terms of maybe you could do a little bit of the work at home, like maybe you can fire up Photoshop at home and build a bunch of elements and then take those elements into Nuke, do a quick composite, and then hit render on it and send it off to the render. There's some interesting sort of hybrid stuff happening. Because frankly, a lot of us, I mean, I remember when I... I have a MacBook Pro now because I think, you know, I'm a freelancer now. When I had a company and we had a bunch of 12 cores at the office, I had a MacBook Air at home because I was like, if I ever need the power, I'll just go to the office where I have the power. And now I think actually more filmmakers will probably, I think this fall will be a really good time for sales on MacBook Pros and gaming laptops because I think more filmmakers that depended upon their office machine to have power are probably going to want a backup of a more powerful home machine. Um, but the, you have, you've also been hearing about some other solutions, Michelle. 
Yeah, I heard of the, I know some folks that are using the HP software, um, but they're using HP software to facilitate the using their Mac from the office. And so I think through a combination of the HP software and remote desktoping in and VPNs, they're able to work as they were in the office that they had. I know some folks who are using like Zoom to try and share their sessions with with other folks that can be massively delayed, but it usually works if they share their screen, it's a little easier as opposed to, or share their, um, as opposed to playing video over Zoom, they're kind of just, you know, playing their premiere, showing their premiere setup, which is kind of nice. My hunch is a lot of this depends on your own internet speed and whether or not if you're remoting into your um, computer you need a client to be able to do that right as opposed to going through the internet and and downloading that way you're kind of pretending you're the computer on your server so you're using a virtual machine to log in and do it that way i what's interesting to me about this and we've talked about this before we could have done this all along <laughs> which has been interesting i think people are realizing like hey would have been interesting if I could have edited from home that day and uh, could use my VPN to log in. Uh, I wish I hadn't gone to the office. So that's, I think they're gonna, I, there's going to be a world, a new world, and when all of this is said and done, where I could see folks pushing to have a little bit more remote time if this holds up. I'm going to make a prediction that I don't think we're ever going to go back to the world we had. Like I think that there's going to be a lot of jobs that are like, okay, three days a week, you're, you're at home. Even when we talk about restarting work, we're going to be talking about restarting work with like groups limited to 10 people. Like a lot of schools are probably still going to stay online next year. I'm assuming film schools won't, but I'm assuming like English departments probably will still be expected to. We might still have very limited attendance at sporting events next year. And I think that like we're going to get so good at this by the time this is done that, yeah, we're going to see a whole lot of like, all right, you guys are in the office Mondays and Wednesdays and then the rest of the time you're remote. And that's just going to be part of the world. Here's what I worry about. I think that even as this problem, this isol- this incident itself becomes, finds resolution or fades a little bit, it will both leave us having explored and refined all these other tactics, but it will also have echoes in our economy that alter the way companies are capable and willing to spend money. And I think that there's going to be some other problems coming down the pike as well. (laughs) I think, I mean, I think we should, like, I don't think this is, I think this is the beginning of a new way of doing things to some extent. Like you're saying, I don't think this is the, this is a, this is a blip. I think this is a, a shift that we'll talk about a before and after is what I think. All right, um, guys, keep in touch with us. Tell us what you think we should call the new segment. If you like the new segment, if you want more of it, you can follow me on Twitter at Charles Hain, on Instagram at Charles Hain. My web series, Salty Pirate, I'm going to write a bunch about it this month. It's available on this platform called Ficto, which is only available for your phone, but it's available there now, and then it'll be on Amazon Prime April 10th. Salty Pirate, it's a web series. I've been working on it for two years. Everybody watch it. This is Michelle De La Torre coming at you from a closet in the Bay Area. 
You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at mdelatour, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Thank you to those of you who submitted your 60-second challenge. We look forward to watching them, and we look forward to hosting potentially more challenges and contests and things in the coming days. Hope you're safe. Thanks. And this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thanks for listening. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a comment, contact us, ask us questions, editor at nofilmschool.com. Head over to nofilmschool.com for stories about everything we've talked about today and other stuff. I wanted to uh, additionally mention NFS 60. So we closed NFS 60 entries officially uh, and we are going, we are in the process of putting together a post that will feature all of them. If you created one, make sure to put a hashtag NFS60 on it. That's how we're finding them. Uh, in the future, we're going to make it a little easier to organize these kinds of things. But this first time through, uh, we're just kind of combing through Vimeo and YouTube by the hashtag. So please make sure to hashtag it. Uh, we will put them all out there. We may even do a you know, certain selection of some at some point, but they will all be up on No Film School and watchable. And we appreciate everybody participating in that. So keep an eye out for that. We're excited about it. And we've got a lot of other cool stuff happening. There is a Cinematographer's Roundtable up also on the No Film School podcast hosted by Charles Haynes. So give that one a listen as well. And thanks so much.